It's the 10th of May, 2019. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com, and this is the RoomNow podcast. This week, we're going to talk about VTE, venous thromboembolic events. The debate continues. Is it the drug or is it the disease? We're going to talk about all in the family, meaning the risk of RA. Is it all in the family or is it just in women? And lastly, we're going to talk about gout prevention. A little prescription can go a long way. We'll start with that story. An interesting study, a small study, 75 patients, um, and looking at predictive factors for gout flares when starting urate-lowering therapy. As you know, you start urate-lowering therapy, and uh, it's not uncommon to have a flare of gout because you're mobilizing all that uric acid. And in this 75-patient study, they did exactly that, and they observed about half of their patients, 78, 48%, who actually developed a gout flare within the first three months of starting urate-lowering therapy. Predictive factors, you ask? Well, it turns out a high CRP, that's news to me, was a predictive factor in who may flare once you start the uric acid levels. Turns out, once you start urate-lowering therapy, turns out it wasn't the level of uric acid elevation, it was the CRP level, meaning the risk was higher if CRP levels were greater than 30 milligrams per liter or greater than 3.0 milligrams per deciliter. The other predictive factor was not being on prophylaxis. And that makes sense, because right now the rules are that when you start on urate-lowering therapy, ULT, you should start someone on some prophylaxis, prophylaxis, such as non-steroidals, steroids, or colchicine. Notice my order. I prefer non-steroidals over steroids, and I prefer steroids over colchicine. Colchicine, it's expensive, it's got side effects, it's not necessary. I stopped using colchicine when it went from five cents a pill to five dollars a pill, and I've been able to manage all gout, pseudo gout, and almost everything else pretty well without it. So you could use colchicine, but the idea is you need to start urate-lowering therapy with a prophylactic drug like non-steroidals or colchicine or steroids. A nice study looked at um, the risk of hospitalizable infection another better, more concrete measure of a serious infection uh, when starting biologics. Sion Kim and, uh, and colleagues looked at this by looking at claims data. Uh, I believe it was Truven and Medicare, sort of commercial and Medicare databases. And they looked at over 11,000 matched pairs of RA patients who were starting either abatacept or a TNF inhibitor. Turns out that there were significantly lower uh, hospitalizable infections in TNF inhibitors, I'm sorry, in abatacept compared to TNF inhibitors. However, all the comparative differences were really seen between abatacept and infliximab. There was actually no difference when you compared risk of serious infection between abatacept and adalimumab or abatacept and etanercept. And we do know that infliximab seems to always run a slightly higher risk of infection, mainly because we upped the dose uh, maybe maybe because we know they're always getting it. Uh, it's maybe used a little bit more frequently in the elderly. This was not an elderly restricted population, however. So pound for pound, abatacept may be the safer biologic here, but certainly it's safer than uh, infliximab. It's probably equal to uh, etanercept and adalimumab. Um, again, there was a lot of other data on, uh, on other drugs to be uh, otherwise instructive. Um, an interesting study also looked at RA patients and the risk of developing RA from the population. Specifically, they looked at over 55,000 people. They found 
um, six, 700 patients with RA, mostly women. And it turns out that predictors of developing RA was body fat percentage, waist or circumference, and being obese. But this was only seen in women. The same risk factors didn't play out in men and were not significant in men. So this suggests that modifiable lifestyle um, uh, things like weight uh, and diet um, can be important, but probably are most important in women. And certainly no women are at a higher risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis. Another interesting study, and actually in that study they showed you pound for pound what happens. So 5% body fat loss, you had 10% higher, 5% increase in body fat, you had a 10% increase in RA. Five centimeter increase in waist circumference, you had a 5% increase in RA. Being obese by BM, BMI gave you a 50% increased risk of getting RA. Another population-based study looked at first-degree relatives of RA patients and compared those who were both ACPA positive and ACPA, ACPA negative. So we're looking at FDRs, first degree relatives, and found that in ACPA positive in, in individuals, there was a significantly higher rate of severe periodontal disease compared to those who were ACPA negative. So periodontal disease was seen in ACPA negative people, but it tended to be mild to moderate and only in 40%, whereas the ACPA positive patients, it was seen in over 90% and most of those were severe. Suggesting again this tie-in between first-degree relatives as a risk factor for RA and the ACPA positivity and now one of these other environmental triggers that may work with autoimmunity um, to further produce a risk of RA. Now there was no risk of RA here. They weren't looking at RA. They were actually just looking at the association of ACPA and periodontal disease in those who may be at risk, the first-degree relatives. I think this lends a, a lot more to the story about um, the risk of uh, RA and identifying those who have preclinical RA and may be at risk. Um, our patients probably need to see the dentist more. I mean, I know we recommend it strongly for patients with Sjogren's syndrome and significant um, salivary loss, but RA patients, it might make a good, it might make a good bit of, a, of guidance to uh, instruct your patients to get frequent dental evaluations, especially if they have a history of periodontal disease. So another study recently looked at claims data, uh, specifically looking at the risk of venous thromboembolic events or VTEs. We know this happens in RA. We know the rate in RA is about 0.5 per 100 patient years. Uh, it can be as high as 0.6. When it's above that number, that means that it might well be due to other factors, more than the disease of rheumatoid arthritis, or inflammation, it may be due to drugs or cancer or other, other risk factors. So in this particular study, again, claims data, they looked specifically at tofacitinib-related VTEs versus TNF inhibitor-related VTEs. And again, using a large number of patients, they found that there was a, a non-significant difference between the rate of VTEs in TOFA versus TNF inhibitors. However, it was numerically higher for those that were on tofacitinib, 0.6 per 100 patient years versus 0.3 per 100 patient years in one data set, that's the commercial data set. And another um, older patient, Medicare data set, it was 1.12 per 100 patient years versus 0.92. Again, tofacitinib, 1.012, 1.92, 0.92.
and TNF-inhibitor is 0.92 per 100 patient years. But remember, I said that's Medicare elderly patients increased risk of developing VTEs. So the overall hazard ratio might be increased with, uh, with tofacitinib, but it's not significant. It's hazard ratio 1.33, but it straddles one with confidence intervals ranging from 0.78 to 2.24. So again, it seems like this is mostly an RA-related risk. It seems like it's, it, it may not be related to the JAK inhibitors, but there's always a little bit of evidence to suggest it might could be, as we say here in Texas. So I think we need to watch this and maybe avoid JAK inhibition in those who have a history of venous thromboembolic events, and then follow those who don't have a history for such events. Lupus patients are at risk for a lot of different comorbidities. One interesting one that we used to see a, a fair amount of uh, at the county hospital here in Dallas, the Parkland Hospital, is pancreatitis associated with lupus. It can be associated with the disease, the drugs, azathioprine, steroids have all been really, you know, um, linked as possible causes. In a, in a fairly large cohort study of over 400 patients with 420 patients with lupus, they found a total of six cases over a number of years, a rate of 1.4% for pancreatitis due to steroids, meaning they had criteria as to you know, starting steroids, then getting pancreatitis soon thereafter. The sad thing about this data set was that of the six cases, very low number, uh, half of them died. And that's shocking and bad news. They did a literature review and they found another 450 lupus pancreatitis patients and also showed a very high mortality rate of almost 50%. Uh, Artie Cavanaugh studied these patients a long time ago at Parkland and showed kind of the same data, although, data, but there were two kinds of pancreatitis. There was those who just had mild amylase and lipase elevations without a lot of symptoms and those who are really sick and in the hospital. It's the ones who get who are really sick in the hospital, very high uh, um, uh, amylase and lipase elevations who are the ones who are at really a significant risk for morbid, if not mortal outcomes. I found a very strange study in uh, PLOS1. This is about the relationship between insulin resistance and fibromyalgia. If you had asked me, is there a relationship? I'd say, hell no. Well, in their studies of uh, 23 patients, they looked at the hemoglobin A1C levels as a measure of insulin resistance and found, it, found that the fibromyalgia patients tend to be a little bit on the high side, although only a few of them actually were in the abnormal range at six or above. But when they compared the cohort of fibromyalgia patients to non-diabetic patients in the Framingham, Framingham study or the NHANES data set, they found fibromyalgia patients had a significantly higher uh, um, hemoglobin A1C levels. And then more importantly, of the 23 patients, there were 16 who were treated with metformin. And um, of course, their cholesterol and whatnot came, uh, I'm sorry, their hemoglobin A1C came down, but they also noticed of the 16, 50% had their pain scores go from whatever it was, four, five, six, seven to zero. I mean, all of them going to zero. So I find this strange, I find this bizarre, I find it interesting, and since I don't know what cause, causes fibromyalgia, I'd like to see more research on something like this. Our last report is about calcium neuron inhibitors in uh, patients with the antisynthetase syndrome in dermatomyositis who also happen to have interstitial lung disease as part of that syndrome. Um, this is a Japanese study of 32 patients who were studied prospectively and they were randomized to receive either uh, prednisone plus a calcineurin inhibitor or just prednisone alone. 
and they followed them and their outcome here was um, um, flare-free survival or they didn't no flares no getting worse no dying they didn't really look at things like CPK and other organ involvement they did show that the use of the calcium neuro inhibitor did give better outcomes compared to steroids alone and that was significant I bring it up because I think those these patients are very difficult to treat the, the dermatomyositis especially the ones who are anti-synthetase positive who have lung disease and I think that you know we're always looking for a good alternative to patients who need a steroid sparing agent to manage their dermatomyositis uh, and you may use methotrexate she may use azathioprine I tend to use uh, a lot of uh, leflunamide often in combination with methotrexate um, and now there's good data on the use of, uh, of calcineurin inhibitors. That means cyclosporin, tacrolimus, sirolimus. These drugs work fairly well. They use them a lot in Japan for very difficult cases of RA um, and lupus, and in this case, dermatomyositis, with great success. Again, these are good drugs. Um, they need to be watched closely. They can be toxic, and especially nephrotoxic, but this is a, a worthwhile alternative for those patients who are hard to manage. That's it for this week on Room Now. Um, go to the website, check out these citations. If you want to find out more information, go to roomnow.live and register to view the content from our meeting from last month. Over 30 lectures, some 15 minutes, some 25 minutes, panel discussions, a great set of content, all for free. Just register and you can look at it and tell your friends about it. We'll see you next week. Take care.